welcome to the Conscious Coaches on the Mission, the podcast where we take super inspiring and profitable mindset, energetics, and online business strategy and get it into the hands of the most heart-centered people like you, creating mission-driven, soul-aligned businesses. I'm your host, Eugenia Oganova. I am a Clairvoyant seven-figure business strategist, personal transformation expert, and a messaging energetics coach with over 20 years of experience. I'm the owner and CEO of TranscensionGate.com and the creator of the Conscious Future Method. I'm also a best-selling author of three books, and I've been featured in over 100 publications, specializing in helping spiritual coaches and healers sustainably scale into multiple six and seven figures without forcing themselves to work harder by weaving masculine business strategy to feminine quantum energetics and customizing with their unique soul design and mission. Twice per week, in my 20-minute conversations, I'll be celebrating one lucky conscious entrepreneur on a unique mission, their expertise, business growth, leadership, and contribution to human awakening. Stick around to the end of the show. In 20 minutes, I'll reveal how you can be my next guest. Let's do it. Our today's guest is Busy Gold. She is a behavioral strategist and mental health industry disruptor, which sounds very interesting. She's a creator of the break method, which we will look into today. So welcome, Busy. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, I'm so glad that you're here and we get to talk about so many interesting topics. But let's start by you uh, sharing with us, what do you feel is your mission in the world? Like, why are you here? I think I'm here to help people heal on the individual level so that they can get in touch with their purpose and become a ripple effect in the world to change things for the collective. Mm-hmm. So each person then has some sort of a role to play in how the world changes. I believe so. I, I think a lot of times people look outside of themselves and maybe even with envy or comparison to think that some people somehow have that driver mission and they don't, or they feel like they're lost and looking for purpose. But I truly believe that each person has the ability to realize what part they play in the mission and actually change things for the future for the collective. Okay. So it sounds like there are a lot of components to this. And if we look at the bigger picture, it's like it's a relationship internally with oneself, right? That would be part of this. And then some sort of a um, subjective perception of reality in general, and then probably the actions in the world, the behaviors. Would you say more on that? So yeah, I think each person has some way that they've been patterned by the world since early childhood, and that will make their perspective of reality very subjective. I think one of the things that Break Method focuses on is helping show each person what that pattern is and how it's distorting their perception of reality and making them engage in repetitive behaviors or assuming incorrectly about certain situations that might re bring relationship discord or potentially create problems at work or in parenting. So I think by looking at the way that pattern has been input onto your brain and addressing that, it opens up all possibilities for who you can be, what you're capable of in the world, and even what 
the world is capable of. We're often very limited in what we believe humanity is capable of based on our old childhood wounds, right? We kind of close off that scope Mm -hmm. of what we think is possible because of what's happened to us. So I believe that by healing that, we not only expand our vision for what we believe we can become, but also what we can achieve as a human collective. So the past has an effect on the future, and the person in the middle would then act like a disruptor, essentially to not bring the past trauma into the future creation. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point, which is we're often taught programmatically in school that you have to study history so to not repeat it in the future. This is actually one of the ways that we are indoctrinated to repeat the past. If we continue to focus on what's happened in the past and we actually put that onto the hard drive of our brain, our brain actually seeks to use that information to inform strategy for the future. This is one of the main reasons that we tend to repeat cycles in our life, be it through relationships or communication style. We tend to repeat that which is ultimately not good for us because we're pulling from what we know. So I think for this reason, as you as you stated, often what stands in the way of us creating a different future is us allowing our, our mind to be predominantly informed by the past. So part of what we do is we help people understand what those past inputs are and how it's created a, a, a system or a web that essentially evades your detection, right? Most people, when they're, I work with 30, 40, 50, 60 year olds, they believe that they are their true authentic self. So every time they go through something, whether it's a preference or a communication style, they have told themselves, this is just who I am. And they believe that with every cell of their being. So they're actually embracing this past programmatic version of self as authentic because that feels easier. It's very difficult and challenging to face all of the ways that what you think is authentic is actually just pattern and in many ways instinct, right? So it's it's our safety reflex rather than who we actually can be. So in a way, we're very much just limited by what we feel safe acting out rather than what we actually can act out, right? That scope opens up when we realize how our brain is actually limiting us to only what feels safe. Yeah, I totally agree with that. When when I work with my clients, I have this idea of the real self and then the conditioned self, which is kind of what you're saying, which is all the overlays and karmic patterns and all this junk Mm -hmm. that essentially we take on thinking it's us. And that's a very interesting point that what people consider authentic could be mistaken for this conditioned reality, thinking that that is who they are because they just letting themselves to be free. Take it one step further. I believe we live in a society right now that encourages people to latch on to those things and claim them as authentic, right? So uh, instead uh-huh. of living in a society where we're encouraged to pause and self-reflect and see if maybe there's a different different pathway we could take, if maybe there's a way we can actually adapt or adjust ourselves to get better results, instead we're just taught to kind of radically own everything, right? Like all of your worst, darkest mm-hmm. behavior. Oh, well, just own all of your darkness, I believe that that is something that's being done to us intentionally to keep the human collective from moving forward, because if we're not encouraged to stop and accurately self-reflect and see where we can kind of peel away that which is pattern and repetition and that which can be made completely new, it keeps us stuck where we are. So I, I don't believe for a second that that is accidental. I think that's something that's happening to us on a collective level very intentionally. And I think to your point, 
how can people know that that's not just who they are? There's nothing in society right now. Maybe if they're working with you, if they're working with me, there's very little in society that gives people a safe but very tough love accountability place to face some of those things. It's really challenging. I In our practice, we call it reality vertigo. When you first come face to face with all the things that you've always thought, right? You could take a polygraph and say, these are absolute truth. When you come face to face for the first time with how many things you thought were one way or actually another, it can start to feel like reality slips out from under your feet and it's hard to function, right? When If that's not done in a way that is supportive and has some structures in place, people can lose their minds very quickly, right? So I think in today's society, there aren't a lot of those practices out there. People are not encouraged to sit with themselves face to face and come to terms with all the things about themselves that are actually just input outputs from the way they were parented. And I think now we're in a place in time when the only conversations about that tend to be under the guise of medicine ceremony, which I don't know your opinion on it, but I think that opens up a whole host of other problems involving medicine in this experience of having to face yourself is just bringing in another distortion to try to look at your distortion. That's never going to actually work effectively. So I think we're just in a time and place where not only is it not being encouraged for people to go through this process and learn how to remove that pattern of the world, but we're taught to do literally the opposite and to lean into normalize and embrace all of our darkest parts. And I think that this is also, unfortunately, a good way to get stuck in 4D on the way to 5D. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Well, so, so in in, my, yeah. in in our work, I always describe the fourth dimension as a sticky web of time distortion. So I think to your point, Exactly that. I believe that's why there's such a push toward normalizing hallucinogens and marijuana. It that that 4D is already tricky to navigate, and people do not continue their ascension process into understanding that that's not actually the spirit realm. That's just a like I said, a sticky web on the way there. It's getting so many souls trapped there that think that they're experiencing these, you know, altered states. They have no idea. They're not even they're not even moving anywhere near where they could go because they're getting distracted with this sticky web. I don't know another way to describe it, but it's I see it all the time with clients and I work a lot with teen populations too and their families. This is I'm seeing record-breaking numbers of teens with depersonalization disorder where you actually believe that you don't exist, which of course, if we want to take it to a hyper-spiritual conversation, like do do we exist? Yeah, not, right, nothing exists course. and everything exists, right? Right, ever, exactly. <laughs> but for imagine a 14, 15-year-old having having no context to engage in that sort of, of thought process, that's going to fracture their psyche. How do they recover from that? They don't. They develop intense panic attacks. They shut down from their life. They start to pull back and isolate from all of their relationships. They start self-harming. Then they start to suicidally ideate and, hey, maybe even try to kill themselves. That is, I think, something that we can see very clearly that that's happening in society, but we're doing nothing about it. We're just continuing to push to normalize hallucinogens and drugs, which I think is colossally ignorant. 
Well, there's sort of a split. And yes, I agree with what you said. And I think there's, as I said, sort of a split between people who are waking up and they become very cause oriented. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like the the warrior, the hero that's going to go and overcome something, which to me is very much 4D and being stuck in duality still. And the mm-hmm. other side, which is escape into 5D artificial, which is the thing yeah. you're talking about, which is mm-hmm. utilizing medicines as Mm, I mean, it could in a if it's done right in a ceremony and everything, it could have a momentary effect as to give somebody point of reference. But it's not definitely meant to be the way because unless we become self masterful, nothing happens. Would you agree with that? Well, I think you and I probably come from a very different spiritual, definite operating definition, which is totally mm-hmm. fine. I think the reality is most people do not have the emotional awareness and discernment to properly navigate something like a medicine ceremony, even Mm -hmm. with the proper boundaries and guidance on the outside. I've seen so many clients over the last three years actually have entity attachments and become somebody completely different in the course of medicine ceremony because they're not able to discern what's what, right? It's, It's like going into the dark and everything you experience, your brain is attaching all kinds of additional meaning to each of those things. And you're already in a more vulnerable state because you're in that medicine ceremony, right? Your 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 tether to reality is not intact. When you are experiencing some of those things, you're not able to properly guard your heart, right? It's so easy for those things to attach to you and for it to potentially permanently alter your personality coming out of it. I've had well, yeah, that's part of the self-mastery thing. If somebody doesn't have it going into it to some degree or self-understanding, that would be the result. But I've seen it happen also with people that have spent a lot of time focusing on those self-mastery concepts and probably would have gone in there believing that they had done that work. And hey, I to be honest with you, I think a lot of them did go in there having done all that work. That doesn't necessarily mean that your spiritual discernment is heightened. You can know a lot of things about yourself and still be deceived in the spirit realm. Mm-hmm. I, I would agree. I think our understanding or definition of self-mastery here is a little bit different because to me, self-mastery is actually personal awakening and increase of the energy range, not just mental pursuit of understanding. But mm-hmm. um, totally get that. So if we look from the standpoint of the overall culture right now, and we look at the personal responsibility component. And I know you work a lot with that within each individual and the groups of people, right? So Mm -hmm. what would you say about projecting responsibility of your own pain onto somebody else? Because there's a lot of this, um, I guess you can call it victim perception or marginalized Mm -hmm. groups or something like that, that ends up taking that almost like a banner of honor, which in reality is in my perception, at least, is a projection of responsibility in there as well. Yes. And in the same framework that we talked about before, society is actually encouraging this in the collective, Mm -hmm. right? So what's happening, and it's interesting because I actually have my podcast coming out on Thursday is called The Narcissist and the Victim. And I talk about how really this idea of the narcissist and the victim are, they're two sides of one coin. And as we as a society continue to elevate that victimhood status, right? Where if you're a victim of something or you've been oppressed by something, you somehow get to put up bumpers in society. You get to make excuses. You somehow get leveled up through your victimhood. What will naturally start to happen is more people will actually look to people to become oppressors that if we were to kind of hit the pause button and all reflect for maybe a higher spiritual realm, 
perhaps that didn't even happen. So I think to your point, a lot of that is projection, right? They're they're wanting to label their situation in a certain way, and they are taking those cues from society and allowing those cues from society to make them look for somebody to project that label onto. And I think we can see it everywhere from politics to what's happening in schools to what's happening in social media. That is consistently the game. And I think ultimately what it does is it gaslights the entire collective into not knowing what truth is anymore. And I know that, you know, even if we look at something like, I totally agree with you that there's my perception, your perception. I think there is still ultimate truth. There is Mm -hmm. objective truth. And by acknowledging how I perceived that and how you perceive that and how we can both take a look at this and say, okay, how can we collaborate and co-create this space in the middle? That's going away. So what's now going away is we're basically saying there's no such thing as this anymore. There's just my truth and your truth, which will make people unable to collaborate. And then again, further influences this kind of collective gaslighting effect where then no one can really live in reality. No one can really know how to operate with the other person. And there's really, we're seeing this kind of diminishing of rules. Like there's no ability for us to know how to engage with somebody, right? Like the the rules of engagement, how there would be in a war, typically in social settings, there's a at least some implied rules of engagement. That's now all going away because everything's now based in assumptions, your truth versus my truth, and we're actually weaponizing words as well. So now certain words are off the table so we can't even accurately describe what we're experiencing because now that word is potentially racist or transphobic or whatever label you want to put on it. So we're now, we're elevating victimhood status. We're weaponizing language and we are kind of putting people into this whole labeling of toxic narcissists everywhere, which typically in my experience, the person that is very quick to label someone else as a toxic narcissist is actually the one Mm -hmm. that's experiencing that very self-centered perspective of reality. And they're typically the ones that if we were from a clinical standpoint, that person would actually present more like a narcissist than the one they're pointing the finger at. All of these things are built collectively to put us into that gaslighting effect where no one knows what's true or false anymore. We don't know how to identify self versus other without being afraid that we're somehow going to say the wrong thing. I mean, what world does that get us into? I think that's not a place that I want to raise my kids in, to be honest with you. Well, that's a great diagnosis. And uh, I I would agree that this is, from my perspective, this is a transitionary step as Mm, old patterns breaking apart, each person ends up with their own perception of reality until the internal development occurs to which we arrive into some communal, much more oneness oriented versus duality split. So what is your perspective? So if this is the diagnosis, what is the solution? (laughs) So I think I, you know, I have certainly spent years of my earlier life not necessarily aligning with exactly how you've described it, but certainly desiring for there to be more this kind of like unity consciousness thing. And uh, in, you know, full transparency, I was raised Jewish in Manhattan and my whole experience throughout my life has, uh, there's always been that anchoring of a deep closeness with God that has never ceased. I think Up until a certain point when I was 19, perhaps my relationship with God was the only thing that I really had that I could count on. So it's always been something that's been very close to me, probably closer than parents and and mentors. So 
my relationship with my spiritual journey has been through a variety of iterations, but suffice it to say, I've, I've explored and allowed myself to be open to a lot of things. And so, well, I don't know how much your listeners would know anything about being raised Jewish, Jewish in New York city, at least for me was very like cultural Judaism. It wasn't like a very strong message of, you know, right and wrong or anything in the Torah. I did kind of go through the processes to be a good Jew, but I don't think that there was any actual foundational component of it. But I think the big takeaway for me was being raised like that in a very wealthy community in Manhattan. You're taught that people that believe in Jesus, it's like believing in Santa Claus as an adult. So I literally, I mean, I, I if you had asked me up until my early 20s, you know, if someone was like, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, I would write them off as a complete Looney Tune. So I'm that person that would have spent the majority of my life writing that person off as a crazy person. But um, I will say the more I've gone into and through this work, the more secure I am hundred percent in actually being a Christian. So I have a pretty different perspective on where I think this is naturally going. Um, I think at the end of the day, even if you look at it from a Christian perspective, there's still a period of chaos and disorganization and then reorganization in like a heaven on earth sort of scenario. So I think from that perspective, the architectures are similar, right? There's There has to be a breaking down and falling apart and then a, a rebuilding consciously. I do think that this idea of duality is important because everywhere you look right now, there is clearly a good versus evil battle. And every aspect of what's happening with the agenda with children or even this elevation of victimhood or trying to weaponize our use of language, it's all very biblical. And it's really hard to pull that away from the experience of what's happening right now. So that's kind of my two cents on it. I mean, I I think things are probably going to get significantly worse coming Mm -hmm. up here pretty soon. And I think it's important for people to simultaneously be prepared, but not panicked, right? Be, Be aware of what could be and prepare yourself spiritually for that while also not just letting go of your human life. I think a lot of times people feel this kind of like doomsday vibe and then use that as a way to escape or check out from their actual life in this dimension. And I think that that's not what God's calling any of us to do. I think we have to stay engaged on the battlefield and present and focusing on what we want to build, who we want to be, what we want the collective to be, while also being prepared, you know, at the soul level for what I believe is coming down the pipeline. And what would be the next step? Like, would it be within our lifetimes or lifetimes maybe of our children? Like, what would be the I mean, shift for so, society? Yeah, so I I think we are looking at a, a rough nine years. That's the number that I keep getting. I think within nine years, we're going to see things drastically shift. And, you know, even if you look at how systems tend to disorganize and then be reborn... Whether you're looking at it from that perspective or you're looking at it from a Christian theological perspective, you can't deny that we're going through a period of destabilization and we're trending into complete and utter chaos. I think individual pockets of communities will have done the work preemptively to thrive even amidst the chaos. I know that I live in one of those communities here, but I think that things could 
look very different in the next nine years. I think, again, even if you're not looking at it from the theological perspective, the proliferation of AI and the transhumanist agenda is coming down the pipeline rapidly. And I think far too many people, even in the the consciousness community, are are somehow duped or unaware of what the implication of that is for organic human creation. And I would say that's that's a message that I've been harping on for about eight years, where it's just like, at the end of the day, whether you're a Buddhist or a Christian, we can all acknowledge that AI is in opposition to organic human creation. They are, they're not symbiotic. They're not capable of being symbiotic. One will want to cancel out the other. So I think what we're experiencing right now, whether it's this, you know, climactic good versus evil battle, or we're seeing this proliferation of AI moving toward the singularity, or hey, maybe from my perspective, I think they're actually all one and the same. I think that's going to look very scary for a lot of people. And it might catch a lot of people off guard that are currently wanting to bury their head in the sand or wanting to still make excuses. And I think to the point that you and I have both been talking about this whole time, people's perspective of reality can be very fragile. And the way we are living in our world right now, we're not taught that there are different ways to engage with it, different ways to look at it. So because we look at it as this fragile thing and we don't want anyone to potentially mess with our experience of it, we get really hesitant to engage in anything that could present us with cognitive dissidence. I think this is one of the biggest areas where anyone that's listening, this is where I think everyone can do some work because you could be confronted with a lot over the next few years that all of your conspiracy theorist friends might have told you was coming down the pipeline. Oh, come on, come on, that could never happen. I think we see that what escalates right now is that actually a lot of these things not only could happen, but the, I mean, there's just evidence of them everywhere and people don't want anything to, to throw a rock at their glass house of reality. So I think the more we can just get comfortable with like, hey, we're all going to have some moments of destabilization coming up here. Like, let's work together to support each other rather than point fingers at the other one because we're afraid to go through cognitive dissonance. Oh, this is so great. Totally. This totally agree. This is really cool. <laughs> so um, to wrap this up today, tell us a little bit more about the break method. And I know that there's a gift or the way that they can learn more about you that also related to that. Yeah. So break method is a process of structured self-inquiry. It is now actually being accepted in the mental health community, whereas the about seven years prior, we were certainly not looked highly upon by uh, industry insiders because I am not a credentialed mental health practitioner. People don't like it when someone from the outside tries to create or disrupt and bring a new solution through, which I think, you know, I'm sure based on all the questions you've asked me today, which are wonderful, by the way, when we're in an industry like this, I think the idea of cognitive entrenchment is something that people don't know what it is and they don't know how to label it. But I think it's one of the things that holds us back the most in society. And it's deeply attached to academia, where you can be trained so much in something that you actually are limited in your ability to problem solve because all you can see is what you've been taught. I think part of the reason that Break Method has become so successful and has now been actually adopted into the system from the outside of the system is because we solved a problem that you can't solve with indoctrination from the mental health sector. So what we often see is that our process of 
doing emotional repatterning. It's something that works in the prison system where we've used it. It's taught at a therapeutic boarding school for teen girls. It's taught with high-level CEOs at large corporations, and it's taught with every level of individual you can think of. And it works every time because of the structure, because of the sequence, because it's actually built to not allow you to step into self-deception. It forces you to face all of these inconsistencies. And there's always a next step that's able to both support you, but also hold you accountable for moving to the next level. So you have to get out of it, having gone through that experience of reality vertigo, having the eight-part brain pattern mapped, understood, and then rewired. So it's effective. It's very process-oriented. It's very logic-based. And we get results very consistently because we're not buying into that person's version of their story. We're not allowing them to get stuck in narrative. In fact, We just go into it with the operating assumption that even if I ask you a question, you have every intention of being honest with me, you're probably not going to be. So we already go into it knowing that self-deception is thick and most people genuinely want to break through behaviors that are keeping them stuck and they might really have tried everything. Typically, break method is that thing that actually gets them to change sustainably and understand why they couldn't change it before. So that's what we do. It's offered online. As I said, we also teach it in the prison system in two-day intensive workshops. It's taught in therapeutic boarding schools. And now we also train mental health practitioners. So we train therapists, clinical social workers, MDs, NDs, et cetera. Wow, that sounds awesome. I mean, you really did create something that uh, kind of inserts from the outside in and then breaks the system from the inside because, you know, it sounds like one of the things in everything you said that keeps standing out to me, it's like you notice when you look at something, you can see where something is limiting and then you mm-hmm. like insert yourself there and break yep. it apart. Break That's it open and then, and then awesome superpower. And then you learn how to observe it. So everything that we do, I always explain it. Going through break method is like being a rat in a maze where we know exactly what we're leading you through, but you can't know the next step or why we're asking something because then you're more inclined to lie or self-deceive and block yourself from getting the right answer. So we're actually, I would say, highly skilled at getting the truth extracted from you even when your brain doesn't want to let that go. So one of the things, it was one of my favorite testimonials, It was from a doctor that's in the UK, and she was saying that I'd previously tried to lie to every other therapist, and I couldn't get anything by and break method because I had to come face-to-face with it. And you might appreciate this, and for anyone that's listening, typically borderline personality disorder is one of the hardest to treat. In our experience of dealing with borderline, we have a really high rate of borderlines that are able to, for the first time, actually see their behavior, understand it, and learn how to stop it because the process of break method breaks them through the self-deception that typically will make them not be able to take responsibility. So traditionally in a therapy setting, uh, a borderline will typically not take ownership and will be in complete denial. They'll literally live in a fabricated reality rather than to take responsibility for something they're being told they do. In break method, they can't run from that. So they end up seeing it holistically when they get to the other side where they have to go back and see all of it and learn how to piecemeal, take responsibility and clean it up. So we've had exceptional results with borderline in our work specifically because of that formatting where they they can't, even if they wanted to lie, which they do, they can't lie to themselves. They end up having to face the truth. 
That is really cool because in the borderline, one thing that's usually missing is the witness, the inner observer. And mm-hmm. this is exactly what your method so, gives yeah, them. So, is that... so this stands in for that. Exactly. Right. It stands mm-hmm. in for the observer and now they can see their behavior. <laughs> totally. Wow. <laughs> really cool. Well, um, awesome. Thank you so much, Busy, for being here and sharing your perceptions, your understanding of reality, your wisdom with us. So they can find you on breakmethod.com, right? This is yes, breakmethod.com. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yep. And we also, so breakmethod.com would be for the programming itself. If you or someone you know is interested in taking it, we work with individuals, couples, and families and teens. We also train mental health practitioners and we also train coaches in a separate program called the self study guide. All of that is on the break method. Awesome. And I will put into the show notes, all this information and all your links so people can go mm-hmm. check out your other work as well. Thank you so much for being here. It was a pleasure chatting with you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of Conscious Coaches on a Mission. If you are a successful coach, mentor, or a healer who would like to be a guest on my podcast, please visit transcensiongate.com slash podcast. Are you the type of person who loves to help? If you got something out of this interview, I would love you to share this episode on the social media. Just take a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. Would love for you to shout us out on Facebook and Instagram at Eugenia Oganova. If you know someone who would be a great guest, tag them on the social media and let them know about the show. And please include the hashtag Conscious Coaches on a Mission. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. I'm regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure that you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your ratings and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and the guests. It means a lot. Want to know more? Go to my website, transcensiongate.com, to advance your consciousness and scale your business in a sustainable way using wealth energetics and soul design. And join my Facebook group called High Ticket Clients Energetics for Spiritual Coaches. Thank you so much for being here, and I'll see you next time.